No problem. Possibly because I've talked about death before, so if somebody wants to go find something on that I've said on death, first off, um, we're all going to die. Everybody's going to die. Another way of saying it also is nobody really wants to die. Even those who actually commit suicide, they just they don't want to die. They just don't want to live the life that they're living. Uh, that there is a basic instinct deeply buried within each one of us that has been identified as a self-preservation instinct. And that that instinct basically keeps people alive. And it would do so in the following way. One is, is that we can, it's possible for us to see danger through wisdom, that we can actually look at something and see that it's dangerous. But normally humans avoid danger because of fear. They become afraid. So there's two ways of doing it. One is through wisdom and the other one is through fear. So whenever we encounter death, whenever death comes close by taking a, you know, a pet dog or a mom or an infant uh, in the vicinity, we all kind of feel really bad for it, for the situation, mostly because it shows our own mortality. Mm -hmm. That if that infant can die just like that, then it can, you know, I can be next. So it feels kind of, um, uh, it brings on, uh, in a very strong way, the insecurity of, of life. That things are not secure because everything is in turmoil. Everything is in flux. Call it a Nietzsche. A Nietzsche, what does Ankara? Anything that can be put together will fall apart. Another way of looking at Murphy's Law. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Thing is, I don't I don't think that's the the main reason why <clears throat> why I myself am feeling the way I am. Um I think the main reason is, you know, he was um because of the virus and everything that's happening. Um my boss was telling me about how worried he was that um, about whether the birth was going to be successful. And um, in the UK, um, no one can come in with the mother because of the virus. She has to go in all alone. So they were all really worried. Um, and then they were all so happy when everything was successful. And now that this has happened, I just, I just feel so bad for him. I just, and his family, um, just, they're suffering. Right. Well, why is everyone suffering? You're, let us say I agree with you that you're piggybacking his suffering. Yeah. Because he's suffering, and you see the state that he's in, you're suffering more in sympathetic vibration with him. But overall... Um, when we lose something very dear to us, like a child, that always brings on grief. Mm -hmm. The Buddha had a sutta for it. It's uh, in the Majjhima Nikaya number 87. Grief 
the name of the hit is Grief Comes From Those Who Are Dear. And in fact, if you look at it like that, uh, in, in one way, the people that we're most likely to fight with are the ones we live with. Mm. Yep. And that when a young man rebels, the maiden rebellion is going to be against his daddy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so in that regard, then the father has grief due to the love that he has for the kid when the kid's rebelling. And when the kid is doing something wrong. When the, when the, the, uh, the, the object of affection does not behave according to the plan of those who, lo- who uh, hold him dear or in this regard love him, then uh, there is going to be uh, grief, despair, unhappiness. And so if a, if a child can uh, put the father into a state of really bad feelings by his own bad behavior, Imagine how much grief then the father is going to get when the kid has uh, uh, so much nerve to stand up to his father to actually die on him. Say that again. Uh-huh. I'm making kind of a joke out of it in the sense that if <laughs> the child is going to rebel and have the father become upset, then if the child goes so far in his rebellion to actually die on the father... <laughs> Then the father is going to feel really, really bad. How dare you, my dear child, to die on me? How dare you die on me? How dare you die on me? <laughs> then making all of these plans about your future and how I'm going to live your life for you. And if you die on me, then you cut a whole chunk of me out. <laughs> so there's a great deal of loss. Now, this sutra that I had mentioned... Basically, the setup is is that uh, the Buddha is giving this instruction that uh, grief comes from those who are dear, and that a a layman or someone who passed by heard what the Buddha had said. And then he got into a gambling game. And while he was gambling, you know, bones, I think, was what they were throwing, uh, dice not fully developed. Uh, and that uh, he was telling them about that, and no one in the gambling den agreed with the Buddha. Oh, no, I love my son. Okay. okay. That grief does not come from those who are dear, but love, family relationship, commitment, connections, and all of that stuff is what comes from those who are dear, not grief. And so while they were talking about it and arguing it out, uh, it just so happens that one of the kings, uh, uh, the, actually it was the queen, one of the queen's uh, attendants, who was very famous, walked by, and she, are, and she had already known the Buddha. So she heard this, and she took it back and gave this information to the queen, who then passed it on to the king, Pasanati. And the king and queen then sent this uh, servant girl back to the Buddha to clarify this, because they were so stricken by it. It just makes no sense to say that grief comes from those who are dear. And so the Buddha explained it to her. She came back to the king and queen and discussed it with them, 
And then the end of the sutta is there where the king and queen are standing on the balcony at the palace, agreeing that, yes, Greek does come from those who are dear. And so this is a good example of that. Mm-hmm. And so at the bottom line of it is our own fear of death. But that fear of death is also exactly the same thing as fear of loss. And then when we lose something, that which we held dear, uh, when it's taken away from us, then causes this kind of grief. And that you're picking up on that. That if you had merely read that some infant had died in the newspaper, then you wouldn't have the same reaction to it. And yet you don't know any more about the infant that died that you would read in the newspaper than this infant that died, other than the fact that you know someone who is grieving over this child. Mm. And so you're picking up that grief. This is sympathetic vibration, and we all have it. In fact, the uh, the, the Pali word for it is um, mudita. But in mudita. in mudita, mostly in that regard, mudita is referred to in Buddhism as sympathetic joy. But in this case, this is sympathetic grief. All right. It's also sympathetic anger. In other words, if somebody comes on up on your porch and, and gets angry, especially, uh, here's an example. If your friend is angry at the bank and he tells you all about what happened at the bank that he doesn't like, his intention is to get you angry at the bank also. Yeah. And so he's going to um, make it sound even worse than it is. He's going to use grandiosity kind of language to bring it up to the level because his intention is to get you angry. If he is angry at you, then you he wants you to get angry back at him. So in that regard, anger is often sympathetic vibration. Um, fear is also sympathetic vibration. That if one animal gets spooked, the whole group will get spooked. And so they'll run off in fear. Now, here's something very interesting. I'll use this as an example of how things can change very quickly. Mary Shelley wrote a book called Frankenstein. You know about the, the original story. Okay, so right at the end of it, the, um, the entire village was spooked. They were really, really afraid of, of this Frankenstein monster. They were all terrified of it. Yep. Until one of them stood up and said, we got to do something about it. And then the collection of the mob changed almost immediately from each individual being terrified into now we're angry as a group. We feel powerful as a group. And so then the group goes to take care of Frankenstein. But each individual one was in a state of anger, or excuse me, in a state of fear. But if you look at it, you can say, look at that. Look how, as that is an example, but we can see that example everywhere of a feeling will become transmitted to a whole group of people. That this is, in fact, what the job of a preacher is, mm-hmm. is to impart a feeling to people. So if he yep. feels in a certain way, if he feels compassion, everybody's compassion. If he yep. feels angry, everybody's angry. And if he's telling a joke, everybody's happy. Okay, so this is basically... Uh, this quality of mudita 
knowing that that's so strong, one of the ways that you can work with this is, number one, come out of your own grief, your sympathetic grief that you had from him, come into a state of joy and sympathy, and then when you're back with him, you can help him to start vibrating at the different level, not at the mm. level of grief, but at the level of acceptance and joy and um, kind of relief that the, uh, uh, the fear of the death is over now because it's actually happened. There's nothing left to fear now because what we were afraid of, the, the infant's going to die because of coronavirus and nobody's around the mom and all of that kind of stuff. Well, it's over now. Mm. And, that, and with that overness, there can be a, a relief. And so that's the way to approach him. Don't approach him back with his grief and your grief and sympathize at a level of grief because that'll just keep the grief going. Mm-hmm. So you have to come out of your grief about it first. And now that we're, we've uh, understood that this is all psychological stuff that comes deep out of our um, instincts. But one of the major teachings of Bhikkhu Buddhadasa that I love so much is, is that we have an opportunity through wisdom come out of our personality, to come out of our instinctual way of doing it, in this case, the instinct of feeling grief uh, in sympathy with, uh, with the other griever, is to come out of that into a state that you want to be in. Something that, that you would want to be in would be something actually helpful and beneficial for him. Yeah, definitely. Rather than being in a state of grief with him, because you're not, now you're both just wallowing in the sewer together. Yep. So this is the way that I would uh, mention that you would want to look at it. Now, let's look down the road. The Buddha is not saying that uh, grief comes from those who are dear. He's not, not saying the next sentence is, therefore, don't have anyone dear to you. Because he's not saying that at all. In fact, uh, the, the friendly connection of the monks and the fact of close friendships being an, an important part of the Dhamma kind of negates that whole idea anyway. And so uh, we do want to hold people dear, but we know in advance through wisdom that we may lose them and they may lose us. And so when it happens, it can be uh, more of a um, unacceptance mm-hmm. rather than a, uh, a grief-stricken moment. Okay, that in fact, if we had known about this in advance, we might have been able to figure out a way of getting uh, your boss ready for the death of the child so that he wouldn't be thrown into so much grief along with everyone else. And there's another point of that, that is is that he does not recognize this quality of mudita or uh, sympathetic feeling vibrations that people have. And it's actually instinctual and part of our um, social system that can be linked all the way back to the nesting instinct or even deeper than that. For instance, schools of fish or herds of animals, they flock and they collect together. This is the part of the mentality. So if someone of our group is in deep grief, everybody in the group 
has to go and deal that decrease too. So in that regard, your boss doesn't quite understand what power he has over making all of these other people feel bad simply because of his own bad feelings. Now, it is natural. It is normal uh, to feel the grief. But you can see that some people get stuck in the grief. Some people, in fact, they want revenge. They want uh, they want the, the head of the doctor or they, you know, trying to blame someone for it. Uh, in this case, it's going to be really hard for him to blame someone to get it off his chest. Therefore, he puts the blame generally back on himself. Yep. And so we've got all of this other stuff that's, that's uh, going along with these bad feelings. And that in this particular moment, your job is to understand that just because he's in a state of grief doesn't mean that you have to be in a state of grief with him. That, in fact, you being in a state of grief is not helping him at all. It's keeping him stuck where he is. Now, we have to be kind of careful because some of the things we could do in this case would backfire. Yeah. And since we can't tell jokes about dead babies, that's all. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have to be careful about how we're talking, but you can do that with compassion. And the compassion that we're looking at here is not the compassion that you're that you think that you have by being in grief because he's in grief. Mm. That's just jumping into the pity party, rather than real compassion is to find a way of helping the person in a real way yep. to come out of the, uh, uh, the, the dispassionate place that they're in. So this is the way that we should, can approach this. So going back to that point about understanding that we can have people who are dear to us, but that they will die. And that sometimes we can almost plan on, well, how am I going to feel if the wife dies or if someone in the family dies? We can actually play kind of a mind game with ourselves that will help us to prepare for things that might happen. That, for instance, if I hold this laptop really dear and then it croaks, now I'm going to... Uh, um, uh, be in a state of grief over the laptop. Well, the easy way that we can do that is, okay, well, we'll keep a spare. Hmm. Yep. It might not be as good as the laptop that we use normally, or in, in worst case, we can move, we can stop using the, uh, the laptop and use the cell phone hmm. for a while. But we can always see the replacement of the, of the laptop because what we really were um, holding dear was not the laptop itself, but the functionality of the laptop. And so understanding then that when we lose someone, we not only lose our attachment with that person, but the value that that person had, like the difference between the laptop and the use of the laptop. So um, getting, getting our minds prepared for the fact that we're going to lose things 
there's a good preparation. We understand just in, in general that just because things change and break down doesn't mean that I have to go into a state of dukkha about it. That I can maintain an equilibrium in the face of all kinds of things that happen. Once you understand that you can do that, now let's start working through the method of the Eightfold Path or the Eightfold Method of the Buddha to bring that about. Because we can actually work with uh, um, that in our practice of Anapanasati. Mm-hmm. I just avoided using the word meditation just now. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, so um, in, in the practice, and we haven't really gone too deep into that, but we, it's good to talk about this. Because this is what you've got on your mind. That that's kind of the way that, that I'm that we're teaching. That I can get. Um, you would spend your time better talking about this than if we merely gave you just a new lesson in uh, Buddhism or in Anapanasati. Yep. Yep. Um, that's actually what part of what's wrong with books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is is that the book doesn't know what mood or condition or questions you have. <laughs> yep. And we're not going to get that. So we need this um, connection that you and I have. Okay. Um, that, in fact, one of the things that would normally happen in a conversation like this is, is that you were telling the story about the grief that, you're, uh, that your boss had and the grief that you were feeling, you're inviting me to feel that same grief. And I oh, didn't yeah. do that. Didn't think of that. <laughs> well, that's how the that's how the Corona nineteen virus is spread. Is people don't <laughs> don't think about how it, how it is spread. So yep. bad feelings are spread like that. And in fact, bad feelings, we should probably put a Corona 19 or 20, 25 or 100 or something mm-hmm. like that because of how much more dangerous the virus of memes or the virus of bad feelings are spread. So when you are in a state of grief and you present yourself to me in a state of grief, I can join that with you. And now we can grieve together over a baby I don't even know. In fact, over a baby you don't even know. Yeah. But you're not getting that from me. And because of that, I'm doing uh, sympathetic vibration backwards for you to bring you out of the grief. In fact, you don't feel nearly as much grief right now as you did when you told me. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) It, it, It kind of is, yeah. Okay. Can I ask a question? Sure. Um, this is actually really, really interesting. I'm glad that I can sit in on this. Um, why do we seek out other people? Because as soon as you said that, it made sense that this is something I can see that I've done before unconsciously, where you have a sort of a strong emotion and you kind of seek out another person to have that emotion with you whether it's excitement i do that all the time it drives my wife insane i'll be excited about something and i want to talk to her 
because I want to see some of that excitement come back from her or something. Do you have anything that you can shed on the light of why do we seek that out? Because I can see why when that situation presents, you know, when you tell when I hear the story of someone losing their child, that I can feel that a bit of grief arising in me. Uh, but why do we sometimes deliberately seek out wanting to have this sympathy happen in other people? What's the uh, what's the I would say we're going right back down to the bottom in the sense of security, that when we feel grief, we feel insecure. When you get yourself into a state of excitement, you feel insecure with that or agitation. It might be a good excitement. You feel good, but there's still an excitement or agitation and you feel you've got to go share it with someone because in a way, we're looking for verification. We're looking for verification. Is my feeling okay to have? Or is actually my behavior okay to have? Now, the, when I was taught about this, the examples that were used, and I've actually just heard this an example. I've actually never been in this situation. And that is, is that um, the guy, a new fellow walks into a bar, and there one of the old customers is sitting, and immediately he sees a new guy coming into the bar. He invites him over, have a drink with me. All right. Drinkers want to have people who come close to them who are not drinking to drink with them. Oh, yeah. Why? <laughs> because most people who are drinking deep down inside, they may feel that it's okay to do this now. But if someone who is a non-drinker comes up, now I am questioning my drinking. Hmm. And if I can get this other guy to drink with me, that means that then my drinking is an okay thing to do. And so the same thing goes with feeling. We want to share our feelings with others because we want verification. We want unification in the sense of the herding, crowding mentality together. It's, it's an instinctual thing that comes out. Thanks for asking that, Robert. That's a really important point. Why do we go and seek out other people to share our bad feelings with? Because I whenever or go ahead. I have a follow up question. Okay. Uh, it's I get an inkling that this seems connected to personality view, like very much so that we are reinforcing elements of our personality. But again, it's something that's too fast for me, at least with my ability to watch my mind, that I can't see exactly what's happening. Can you shed a little light on that maybe? Why is it connected to personality view or am I just off base here? No. In fact, you're spot on with that simply because... Um, it's very interesting. We can pick that fetter apart just a little bit. And that is, the fetter is to be able to get over personality view. Now, what is the personality view that is uh, the source of dukkha? Is I am my personality. This is who I am. And that if we look at the way that the five aggregates are broken down, or even the Satipatthana, that becomes the personality that I am what I feel. This is what's my the body. Satipatana? Pardon? Satipatana. Well, what's the Satipatana? That's the four foundations of mindfulness. 
the four of them are body, feelings, mind, and mind objects, but we take it as personality, as body, feelings, consciousness, perception, and our memory base. Right, yep. Okay, so who I am, the sum total of me, is um, the way I think, the kinds of thoughts that I have that are based upon uh, past um, information that's stored, along with um, the, the body, the feelings of the body, and the feelings of the mind. Okay, but basically what personality for humans are is a bunch of feelings that are associated with instincts rather than yep. the kinds of feelings that we want to have. What are the instinctual feelings? Well, the bottom line is fear. Fear gives rise to agitation and worry, and it also, fear gives rise to anger. If we've lost something, then we have that grief or sadness, which is generally also a bodily feeling, but it has to do again with those instincts, I've lost something, but danger, that's, that's the whole quality of the self-preservation instinct, is managing danger, but there's a better way to manage danger, and that is with wisdom, and sometimes wisdom works even better than the instincts, that a lot of times instinctual feelings of danger get people even more in danger. An example of that would be the coronavirus. People are locked in their houses. They feel cooped up, cabin fever. They want to get out. Why? Because they don't like the way that they feel trapped at home. And they think they can stop feeling those bad feelings by going out and doing what they used to do. Now, here's the thing that's really interesting. Those feelings that they have now that are all cooped up, were the exact same feelings that they had uh, before when they actually went out. Except that when they felt it, it was slight or it was small, they go out and they do something to stop feeling the way that they did. But here, they're trapped at home, and they don't have this way of escaping from their feelings. And so these feelings get bigger and bigger and bigger. So now they really want to get out. And they're doing, actually, by going out, now they're really creating real danger. The danger was not how bad they felt when they were coped at home. The real danger is going out and, and catching and spreading the virus. Yep. And we can see that through wisdom. So the people who are wise, we can also see wisdom with compassion. Or, in fact, real wisdom is compassion in the sense that we can see it's one kind of guy that wants to go out and thinks that he's immune to the virus because of, there's several things that I've heard. One is like in the state, oh, that's only on the blue state or it's only on the coast. Another one will be, oh, I've got the blood of the Lord, Jesus. I'm washed in the blood. I'm immune to it. But basically the view that they have is coronavirus, oh, I can deal, I can get away with it. Mm -hmm. I can go in and, and get dirty and get away with it. But they don't know anyone who has it, so it's not yet close to them. That same guy, then, that's talking like this is willing to get his gun out and parade around and saying, end of uh, uh, all of that. If his own child or mother died, 
he will change his attitude because why now? Now it's close. Now he's lost someone who is close to here. The question is, can we see that compassion that he has with just wisdom to just recognize, hey, there's, if we don't shut down now, even if I don't catch it, there's still going to keep spreading and people are going to be sick and the, um, the hospitals are going to be full of people and there's going to be all kinds of problems. So we can see through wisdom that it's dangerous to go out. But a lot of people don't see the virus. They don't feel the danger. And so they go out and they catch the virus, maybe. In fact, the, the scientists are really worried about what's going to happen in the United States without any testing and, and opening things back up. Mm-hmm. But this is really relevant because it teaches this stuff about how the mind works. That, in fact, those people who want to go out because they're getting stir-crazy, they want to associate with other people who feel exactly the same way they do. And so they will actually actively encourage people to feel bad the way they do so that they can get the support that they're right. And so, in fact, stir-crazy has exactly the same symptoms of it as the, the, uh, uh, the guy, by, guy in the bar drinking and wanting validation, it's okay for him to drink. Yep. And so we have all of this stuff around Mudito, which has to do with um, uh, sharing of feelings on a massive level uh, in this coronavirus. But it happens always on a one-by-one individual transmission. It's not, you know, like the coronavirus. No one is putting it in into a big, uh, huge container with liquid and spraying it like cops spray. It doesn't happen that way. It's always transmitted one person to another. That memes are also uh, transmitted that way, one to another. In fact, they use the word meme because it's like a gene. But these mental memes are actually based in a kind of a feeling or a concept that has a feeling associated with it. Yeah. So, we transmit things one by one, one at a time. One drunk wants one guy to have one beer with him, and then the next guy that comes in, that same drunk will get one more guy to have one beer with him. All right? So that's the way that it keeps going. Um, But... Once we know that this system is there, we can pay attention to it, especially when we get into contact with other people who are trying to get us to feel the way they feel. So is that with everything? That's with Any, everything. Anytime You're right. someone wants someone to do something with them. Exactly so. And it is instinctual. In fact, how deep is an instinct? Because I used to think that it was only down to the mammalian level, but now I recognize that's not true. Why? Because birds are not mammals. And yet birds flock together. Yep. That if, uh, let's say, a tree full of blackbirds, never mind how they're all blackbirds all in the same tree, because that's the whole point, isn't if a gun goes off and they all fly 
what they'll do is they'll circle, they'll get together into a group, and then they'll all fly off in that one direction. Mm-hmm. Another example yeah. is the school of fish. Yeah. Okay. Why do fish school? They do it for individual protection. That each individual in that school of fish is less likely to be eaten if one of his brothers is eaten. But if he's out of the school and he's out in the big ocean all by himself, he's much more vulnerable to get eaten out there. The same thing then happens with wildebeest or zebras or whatever. They herd together to keep protection because the outlying wildebeest, the old wildebeest or the, uh, the limp, uh, the lame one, He's the one that's going to be taken out by predators. And so we tend to herd together in our mentality because a lot of what uh, animals do at a physical level, humans do at both the physical and the mental level. Yep. And so in the, another example of that uh, is territory. That our territory instinct in the sense of, okay, this is our school of fish or this is our flock of geese, or this is our uh, political party, or whatever like that. This group is not the same as that group. That group over there is dangerous. In fact, that's exactly what uh, uh, Robert and I were talking about. In Thailand, the Westerners coming into a Y, and the Thai <laughs> exactly that. You're not us. Hmm. You're an outsider. Okay. Uh, so this territorial instinct is um, uh, almost the other side of the coin of the herding instinct or the nesting instinct. That this is our group, and that group over there is dangerous. They may, be, in fact, be predators. They may be other wildebeest, but I don't know that. I don't know who they are. All I know is they're dangerous, or they might be dangerous. And so and this about is how, figuring that, out. And so this actually further pushes the herd closer together. And it puts us uh, humans in an us versus them mentality. Even though this is not strictly physically territorial, humans still have it. Just like the dogs here. They are very territorial. So if anyone comes into the yard, they want to know it. Mm-hmm. And they're very interested in who comes into their territory. Well, humans do that too, except that humans are all over the place right now. And our territory has become territory mentally in the sense of uh, views, uh, ways of looking at things. An example of that would be Democrats versus Republicans, black versus white. You know, you can see all of these racial divides, all of these political divides, all these religious divides, all of that comes out of the territorial instinct of us versus them. We want to get our group together. And they're all ideas. Just for, for protection. That's going back to, to um, uh, Robert's original question, which is the reason why he gets excited is through these very, very deep things that he actually now wants to make a connection with his wife at the level of the way he's feeling. And she don't want nothing to do with it. <laughs> She's a smart girl. 
See, I always throw my excitement at her, and she throws like her sadness and anger and other things. And I am always like, I don't want anything to do with whatever angered you on Facebook. Like, who cares? That's the. But for whatever reason, excitement is the one emotion that I still can't get over just that urge to share. And it kind of baffles me sometimes why I feel this need. Well, now you're not baffled so much as you're understanding this is deep. This is right down to your genes. It's like I said, I'm asking because I can see I get a glimpse of I think that there these are some of the things underneath the hood that are happening, but I don't have the ability to observe what's happening in my mind fast enough to see exactly what's going on. So I get a hint. I think it's connected to this, but I can't see it clearly yet. Yes, here's how you do that, though. Now that you know what to look for, watch closely. Be on guard for this. As soon as you feel excitement the next time and you get the thought or the urge to go tell your wife, don't. Stop and look at how you're feeling. Look at what you're doing. Mostly just agitating my mind more and more, but... Well, yeah, but then you you look back and say, yeah, look, and I'm agitating the mind, too, and I don't have to agitate the mind. But that's just all the old habits that we have, is agitating the mind because we're not getting what we want, which is communion with another person in the feeling world so that they can validate the way that we feel. Now... Let's look at it from the other side of it. Once we begin to, or actually after we do kind of really wake up and get into, uh, you, Robert and I were just talking about the Shambhojanga, which is the Eightfold Noble Path in its fulfillment. Now, the so being enlightened. Yes, so right. These are why they're called enlightenment factors. These are the factors that go into what it is that's enlightened. Yep. Is that um, the first one is unremitting sati, that every time something comes up like those kind of feelings, we become aware of them. The next one is unremitting investigation. Let's look at what this stuff is. In the, in the very, very first time that the Buddha was doing this, when he was putting this system together, he came up with the phrase, aha, I see you, Mara. Aha, I see you, Mara, is these two points of uh, sati and investigation of the mind. And he can see that this stuff is, in fact, a form of Mara. Now, in uh, practicality, Mara comes in two forms, feelings and thoughts. And the feelings and thoughts are often intertwined, that one will cause the other. And one will influence the other. Um, That when we get angry, we can't even think straight. That's how much anger affects the mind. It really does, so that we can't even think straight. This is so well known that even uh, in many kind of sports or competitions, like, for instance, in debating, they have this rule of no hom- ad hominem attacks, which means you can't attack directly your opponent. Why? Because if you do, you'll upset him and then you'll win. So you can't challenge him. You can only challenge his position because he knows he's not that position. In fact, in debating school, people are taught to, try to, to change their position. That is your debating skills that are on show, not your position. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Getting someone angry in a debate 
and the, and then they get confused. They can't answer the questions. They don't know where they're going, et cetera, like that. My favorite, though, is in the 1972 World Championship for Chess, where Bobby Fischer and Boris Spassky were in contest. Now, uh, uh, Spassky was a world champion chess player. Bobby Fischer was merely a very good chess player who also had uh, psychological skills. And he would do things to Boris Spassky that just blews for Boris Spassky's mind. Like what? All right. One of the things is is that you ha- uh, in that rule of chess at that level, if you touch a piece, you've got to move it. So what uh, uh, Bobby Fischer would do is he'd hover his hand over that piece for a long time. And the whole audience and everybody, because they knew that he was going to move that piece, he just was hovering his hand over it for a long time. But he didn't actually touch it. And then after a long time, because he was already looking around the board, he knew what else he was going to do. And when the time was just about up, because these are timed um, uh, events, then he would move this piece over here. And that would completely destroy Spassky's mind because he's expecting him to move this piece. He's got his hand right on top of it. Then when it's for Spassky's move, Bobby Fischer would get up and walk off the stage. And then he would come back around to the other side of the stage and sneak up behind Boris Spassky and stand there. This is exactly what happened with Donald Trump with um, uh, in the debates with... Uh, 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 Hillary Clinton, that she felt stalked by him, that wherever she would go, he'd be right behind her, and that really did frustrate her. Yep. Any okay. any good politician would have turned right around to Donald Trump and say, get off my back! What are you, some kind of animal? Go sit down in your place and be quiet. This is my turn, mm-hmm. you know, and just really, and before the crowd would just cheer, cheer, you know, because everybody was really freaked out that he was standing around. But that's Boris Spassky and uh, Bobby Fischer right there. This is how Bobby Fischer won that tournament, not because he was a better chess player. So these are all well-known psychological things. These are well-known psychological things, exactly. Wow. And so um, uh, if we can get someone... uh, off their train of thought, get them back into feelings. While we're feelings, we can't think well. Not, not, not with wisdom, not really looking at things. Why? Because we're clouded and influenced by our feelings. But if we feel very, very good, now your thought process and your wisdom is going to be clouded by a different kind of feeling. So what are the kind of feelings that are really worthwhile having as opposed to the kind that are not worthwhile having? Well, we can give a list of those. In fact, the Buddha talks about them in the sense of the four woeful states of anger, agitation, fear, wanting something we don't have. Uh, Actually, the hurting instinct itself would be going along to get along. The Buddha calls this being an animal as opposed to wanting things we don't have is the frito or the hungry ghost. And the hell is anger and agitation. So these are the, uh, and fear being the assurance. These are the ones that we're going to avoid. So what kind of feelings do we actually want to then engender? 
those would be two different kinds. One would be the feeling of satisfaction, comfort, and security. And on the other side of it, which is very closely related, is uh, the feeling of success, the feeling of uh, power, the feeling of I can do this. And when you put these two kinds of feelings together, you have uh, uh, in Pali, the words are pity and sukha. Ah, so that's okay. And so these are the factors or the, uh, the, uh, the feelings that you actually can have and want to have, but we spend too much time automatically through our uh, instinctual personality to have the bad feelings. So going back to that question uh, that Robert was raising around that first fetter of personality view, the view that people have is I am my personality. I just feel the way that I feel. These are my feelings. I'm angry is the word or I, you know, I'm sad or uh, uh, whatever the feelings are. Just like I, these are my feelings or I feel this. These are my thoughts and I think this. This is my body. Except if you go on close inspection, no, this is not your body. It gets old on its own. Doesn't need your help to get old. And you can't make it young again. If it's bald, you can't make it grow hair, even if you buy Rogaine. <laughs> All right. If you have a big, bushy beard, you can't will that beard to stop growing. Got to keep working with it because there it is. We do not have the kind of control over the body that we would like to have, or in fact, that we don't have much control at all. That's the only thing that we can do is either keep it clean or not. But other than that, we don't have much choice. And yet, look how many products are sold on the open market through the business world that is selling to people who have the delusion, I am the body. Cosmetics, hair care, all the hair products, all the fancy dresses, sportswear, all kinds. And, and then you could go and start picking it apart down to even the medical profession. I am the body. And so I got to go to, the, I feel bad, therefore I've got to go to the doctor because I can't fix my own body. But it's my body, okay? So it's all of this selfishness around our um, view that I am the body. I am these feelings. So how do you find a middle ground? Between ah, but, uh, let's, <laughs> not, let's not go that far yet. Let's go to only the point that understanding I am not, in fact, okay. this personality. That just because you're in the habit of feeling one way doesn't mean that you are doomed or destined to continue to feel that way. Mm -hmm. Many examples. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Right? Is one of, of many examples. But what the Buddha is, and especially recently what we're talking about with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, makes the point that no, you are not your old comma. No, you are not the samsara that you've been repeating over and over and over again. Yep. But that's not who you are. Once you figure out that you are not your personality, now you can begin to ask questions about, well, who do I want to be? How do I want to feel? 
Now, that's a different kind of question than the one that most students uh, uh, start to ask themselves wrongly, and that is, who am I? Because who you are is not definable. We're naturally on a path. That's like saying um, uh, on, a, on a car trip between Dallas and Fort Worth, or excuse me, between Dallas and uh, um, uh, Amarillo. And here we are, and we want to know, well, where am I or who am I on this road? The answer is, is that just sit here and you're going to change. Your location keeps changing. So you're not in any particular place. That you're just somewhere between Dallas and Amarillo. Maybe closer to one or the other, but where you actually are right this instant is irrelevant because an instant later you're going to be someplace else. You're on the road. You're moving. So who am I is not a fixed thing. So you're a process. And that's really good to know, too, because now we can start to take direction on which way this process is going to be going. So you when you have choices, go ahead. So when you when you're not bound by the personality view, then you would never feel like any of this stuff is yours. Wouldn't say that at all. Why? Because we need to reapply our new wisdom of this is not who I am over and over again. Because when we go to sleep, that old personality comes back into play. It's really deeply ingrained. It's in fact part of our um, mental programming. Mm-hmm. And that that mental programming is programmed right down to the genes. And there's no escaping it. You, in fact, don't want to become, until you have the right opportunity, completely fearless. You always want to maintain a little bit of fear because fear is actually useful. What, like fear of wrongdoing. Yep. Okay. In fact, fear, as Vika Buddhadasa points out, can lead to energy. It's sort of like... Um, how to say it. Imagine that you put your hand on a hot stove. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what happens to the hand. It flies back by itself with its own kind of energy. Almost before the mind even registers the pain of the heat. Okay, so there's something involved with this. That deep kind of, of fear that we actually do want to keep can be put to good use. But when it comes up as fear, we need then to use our wisdom mind to check out, is this safe or what? In other words, is it really dangerous or am I merely feeling fearful? Because if it's not really dangerous, and most of the time it's not. An example of that is, is that you get stopped by the cops. You're driving down the road and wow, 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 whatever they make. And almost everyone goes into a state of fear. And in the United States, being afraid of the cop on a stop like that can get you killed. Mm. Because you behave badly and the cop is already in a state of heightened alert and fear. These cops, I mean, going out and stopping random people on the street is a dangerous thing to do. And the cops have their own levels of fear. They're not getting over it. We don't have Buddhas out there as policemen. They won't take the job. (laughs) Looks like Robert just left. 
Yeah, is that um, is that by accident? Did... I'm sorry, what? Is that um, as in did he lose connection or? Uh, well, if he comes back, that'll be good. And if not, we'll just continue on. All right. Okay. Um, so what we were talking about is, is that there is use for fear. So we don't want to squash it, kill it off, murder it or whatever. We merely want to tame it. I always thought the objective was to get rid of it. No, no, not until the right time. Okay. Okay. Until then, uh, and that what we want to do is completely manage it. You can't just get rid of it, but you can learn to manage it. Okay. Which means that now we can manage it to the point that it's not an enemy, now it's a friend. In that way, we can call that being fearless. But in fact, being able to completely manage our fear is a better way of talking about it. So fearlessness, sure. yep. fearlessness then would be then the complete ability to, to manage one's fear so that the fear never takes over. Mm -hmm. That would be almost like the same thing that, uh, that they have both in Buddhism and Christianity, and that is power over death. Yeah, because it's the fear of death, isn't it? It's the the fear, fear of aging death. and illness and all that. Mm -hmm. And death yeah. has no sting if you invite him in. Yep. And sometimes that will happen. There will come a time when the body is so depleted, so worn out, perhaps with coronavirus, and it's just too difficult to take that next breath. And so we die. Mm. Now, are we going to die in fear, or are we going to die in the acceptance? Well, finally, here it is, you know. Yep. Yeah. If we can't take the next breath, can we at least smile? Mm. Okay, so this is the kind of way of looking at it. So that would be kind of a fearless death that we can do, but we still want uh, to have that fear as, uh, as a useful tool, and... Um, it sometimes will save our life. So we can't mm. say we're going to become intentionally fearless by murdering it. No, we're going to become intentionally fearless by being able to manage our fear very well, like a well-trained dog. Mm -hmm. You yep. want the dog out barking in the yard, so you can pay attention to what the dog's barking at. But after we see that it's safe, now we can call the dog off. Mm -hmm. And the dog will then come back and sit down and enjoy his life, all right? So this is a way of looking at, but we can do that. If we can do that with our fear, then that means we've been able to manage all of our feelings. Yeah, definitely. Okay, because why? Well, anger is nothing but a reaction to fear. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fight or flight. Yep. Okay, but it's still... The, the body components are still there, so you have adrenaline and all of this stuff in the body. So, even though we know this personality view that we have had, I am this, or I am this personality with this feeling and this body and all of that, now we can intellectually at least say, no, I'm not. No, I am not this mess that has been made all of these years. 
That's one's right view. That's a noble right view, then, which is actually what we're looking at. That it will be later when we actually disassemble, more or less, this personality, but we start with the view, right? Noble view, I am not this personality. And you have to keep reinforcing it. And reinforcing it over and over again. How do we do that? With sati. Every time we remember, wakey, wakey. So uh-huh. we're right back on the Eightfold Noble Path. Every time that some feeling comes up, we can say, wait a minute, I am not that feeling. And that I can feel the way that I want to. So this is how Anapanasati is practiced. The first thing that happens with a base of right view. So we have that right view, I am not the personality. Another part of that right view would be, it is better to come out of that personality than it is to stay in it. Mm. And then another way we could look at right view is it's better to come out of this personality right this very second than to stay in it right now. And it is possible. That's one's normal right view is I can do this right now. And so then Sati comes. I remember, now that I'm set for this personality view, then when it comes up, I can catch it. And this is what the Buddha meant by, ha ha, I see you, Mara. Uh I can see this grief. Uh I can see this um, thought or whatever that the hindrance is in the mind. So, uh I see you. And by doing that, we're also beginning to gladden the mind or change the attitude just slightly from I am the personality, this is who I am and I'm stuck in it. I am the Mara is the viewpoint before we wake up. But as soon as Sati comes, we can say, no, I am not the Mara, I see the Mara. (laughs) This, in in a way, is like a disassociation that you were associated with the personality. I am the personality. I am these feelings. I am this thought. And then Sati comes, and along with that is the, um, the investigation to the point of saying, no, I am not this feeling. Aha, uh-huh, I see you, Myra, then brings us out or separates us from that thought or feeling, that hindrance. And they're just things that are happening on their own. Exactly. And these things happen sometimes really fast in the mind. We're talking about, uh, you know, it took me five minutes to describe what happens in less than a second. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Okay. So now that we can say, "Uh uh-huh, I see you, Myra, and gladden the mind, and now we've set the foundation for uh, feeling the way that we want to feel. Because we've already just caught ourselves feeling the way that we don't want to feel. And we're going to change that. So, now that we set that stage, we can look at uh, taking right effort, part of the Eightfold Noble Path. What is one's right effort? Uh, For most people, for a long time, I would say it's twofold. One is to take a deep breath. You get the thing option tonight, because one of the qualities of fear is, is that we shut down. The idea of fight and flight always is preceded by freeze. What? what was that? Okay, so we freeze, literally. 
And that freezing also stops the breathing. And so we normally go around if we're in a state of um, uh, personality. The personality normally doesn't breathe enough. Yep. And so we need to actually start oxygenating because, in fact, the real wisdom comes from the human part of the brain, the frontal cortex, to where the reptilian brain can survive with very little. But the frontal cortex, that's it's almost like it, that's our supercomputer. That's the new fancy fangled hardware that humans have that nobody else in the animal world have, but humans are not very skilled at using it. Yeah. They don't use that much. And so getting it oxygenated and getting it fit for work is exactly what we're doing here. And that means that you can also begin to feel the way you want to feel, which back to the point that I said about pity and sukha, feeling success, feeling satisfaction, feeling contentment. But really, really important is to feel secure. I feel completely secure. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, towards the end of this, we can continue on later, but this is actually the practice then of Anapanasati. And I have touched on step nine, step 10, step uh, one, step uh, uh, five, and step six. You didn't even know that. So I've already covered no about half of Anapanasati with you, with just this little part here. Without even uh, speaking about it, really. Right, without, but we will get into it so that you understand it better. But the point of it is, is that, number one, you're not the personality. Number two, you can change that. Number three, wake up and remember that you can change it. And then immediately change it from the sense of, aha, I see you, Mara, pulls us out of it. And now we are no longer that bad feeling. We can see it, but we're not it. We can see that, that thought, but we're not it. That we've drawn ourselves out of it. By doing so, now we've set the stage that you can now feel the way you want to feel. Okay? That's part two. And this is also part of one's right effort, is to gladden the mind, as well as to take a deep breath. And now we can then begin to uh, intentionally... Um, and we've also worked now with three aspects. One is right view, right sati, and right um, effort. The fourth one to be added is right attitude, which is exactly the feelings that we're talking about. The feeling of success is what they call in the Pali pity. But it also has the mental attitude of, I can do this. I can come out of my mind. I can come out of that personality. I've been practicing, and the more that I do, the more I recognize I can do it again. So I thought the pity was like rapture. Okay, but what is rapture? That's a term they use, but they don't define the word rapture. I always thought it was that feeling of energy that, you know, okay. that comes up sometimes. Well, does a loser have that kind of energy after he's just been beaten half to death on the floor of the ring? Or is it the guy who's dancing around with his arms in the air? Who's got the energy? So that's a feeling of success. Okay. It's a feeling of success. It's a feeling of we can do this. But in fact, uh, as the path progresses, the 
the the Buddha talks about that there are seven stages or seven knowledges associated with Sotapai or being noble or having the noble mind. And the first step on this path, uh, and by, and he says it that way, the first step or the first knowledge on the path then is defined as the path of Sotapai. And that knowledge is that no matter how obstructed the mind becomes, that we can clean that stuff out and come back to this present moment and see things the way they actually are. It even mentions the word truth in the sutta, that you can see the truth. The truth is, is just, just because your boss is feeling bad about his baby doesn't mean you've got to feel bad too. That's the truth. Yep. And in fact, if you feel bad along with him feeling bad, then now both of you are feeling bad, uh, wallowing in it together, keeping the bad feelings going. I just felt like I couldn't help it. Pardon? I just felt like I couldn't help it. Well, at that time, you couldn't because you did not have this talk. You did not have this new information. You didn't help yourself. But now you can be on guard with it so that when you go to be close to him, you want to be able to cheer him up. Yep, definitely. Okay, and the way that you can do that is by cheering up your own mind. That you can go back to him feeling contented and satisfied. Mm. That you can control your own mind. Even though instinctually you were almost uh, in personality forced to feel the grief that he felt. Mm. But now you recognize, no, you are not that personality. No, you are not that old habit system. That you can change it. And you can change it any time you can remember to change it. And every time you uh, remember to change it and take the right effort, then that's going to help change your attitude. And so these things run and circle around each other and build up so that you get a new kind of power. So it's, it's to notice it, um, which is sati, um, to, to realize that it's not you, which is right view. Mm-hmm. I see you. I am not you. I am not that suffering. But in that moment, you can say, I am not my boss's grief. Yep. And then right effort is... To take a deep breath and gladden the mind. And we gladden the mind with, aha, I see you. So it's all wrapped together. It's just kind of one little step, but we're giving the various little components of it. Uh So when when we wake up, we wake up into a breath, into a deep breath, and we wake up into, aha, I see that. Yeah, it does. It does feel good. Excellent. So this is what we have to say about it. Now that you know how to put this together, you can go practice putting it together so that now you can deal with your boss at a much more wholesome level for both of you. Mm-hmm. Yep. And there are still things that you can do that uh, that reek with sympathy. You can get him a bottle of whiskey or a fine cigar. Mm. 
Okay, maybe flowers, but flowers, I'm not so sure that that would be the right thing. But uh, normally in, at funerals, that's what they, what they get. You could actually, um, because you know him fairly well, you would know um, the kind of organization that he would appreciate you donating money to in the name of the dead girl. So these are the kinds of things that you can do for sympathy-wise, but you don't have to share his grief. But you can be in sympathy with him or in harmony with him in his grief without being in your own grief. You can cheer him up just with your own smile. Uh. You can you can actually go so far as to even uh, how to say it. I'll use the word tease, but that's too strong. You can actually come up to him with your big smile, and when he sees you, you can say, "Wow, I'm really glad to see you're in, in a good mood today." Uh, By just saying, "Wow, I'm glad to see you in a good mood today," we'll pick up his mood. Uh, yeah, definitely. So this is a way that you can manage that. Be in sympathy, be in harmony, but don't join him in his grief. Mm. And that's going to take some mental work for you. Yeah, I think so. All right, well, let's finish this off here. I think this has been a really good chat. Yeah, me too. All right. We'll see you soon then. Yeah. Do you have any questions before we go? Um, no, none at all, actually. It's been very helpful. Okay. All right. So do you mind whether we publish this one or not? It doesn't matter, but... Um, thing is, I'm just worried about about it going online and people seeing things that may cause problems in the future. Okay. Well, if we run across that, then we will, but I don't see this talk putting you in any danger at all i don't know i i still okay we won't do it then we'll just leave it thanks no problem i've got plenty of videos out there i'm not i'm not into the numbers game i was about 200 videos ago <laughs> oh wow it's a lot of videos yeah there's uh close to 500 now Wow, yeah. So lots of Dhamma is on, out, out and about. Mm -hmm. So good to talk with you about death and grief and, and all of that, because these are major issues for people. It's a major issue for you right now. It may not have been last week, but right now it's a big deal. And so this is good that you can ask these questions and we can talk about it. So that you can understand that, of course, he's going to feel this kind of grief. But it's not your job to feel that kind of grief. You've got a better job to do, and that is to help get him out of his grief. Mm. You're not going to do that while you're in it. Yep, it's true. Two, two drowning people in the ocean cannot save one another. <laughs> yep. Okay, All right. see you later. Thanks for everything. When are you going to call again?